0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and occasionally I like to step before the microphone again and do an interview. I don't get to do as many as I would like to do, as I have a kind of a new role. But when I saw Chris Miller's book, The Struggle to Save the Soviet Economy, Mikhail Gorbachev, and the Collapse of the USSR, I said, well, actually, I said, why hadn't somebody written this book sooner? That's what I said, Chris. But anyway, I said, I have to talk to Chris because this is a tremendously important uh, topic. And uh, he brings up what should be for everyone a kind of an obvious analogy. And that is uh, we have two, uh, I don't know if they're post-communist states anymore um, in the case of China, but we have two states that were communist, uh, that is uh, the USSR and China. One of them has made a relatively successful transition, at least economically. The other one has not. And uh, Chris asks, well, why is it the case that the USSR did not make that transition and he's uncovered some absolutely fascinating things and he has some really important things to say. So the very first thing I want to say to Chris is congratulations on writing the book. Oh, thank you. Marshall. Absolutely. Uh, could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. So I, uh, I finished my PhD in history at Yale about two years ago, and I now teach uh, history and grand strategy. Um, at Yale. So kind of a mix of uh, history and international politics, and I also teach courses on Russian economic history and economic history more generally. Um, And that kind of provided me with the the intellectual background for writing the book.
0: Mm -hmm. So tell us this, and I've sort of of given away what I think is the answer, but uh, why did you write this book?
1: Well, I guess there were were a couple of reasons. Um, The first is kind of uh, beyond the, the confines of Russian or Soviet history, there's a, a story that's often told about the 1980s and 1990s as sort of this global neoliberal ch- shift where you have Reagan and Thatcher and then people put next to them Deng Xiaoping and Mikhail Gorbachev It's sort of this kind of broad global shift towards the market. Um, and there's clearly something to that story, but I think the way it's been told in the past has not been very attentive to the specifics of each of those countries and the differences between what was going on there? So that was kind of the initial question that motivated research, which is what was going on at the global level um, that explained uh, what many people have described as a shift towards the market. Um, and I investigate that. I went to the Soviet archives um, about five years ago now um, to dig up some of the sources that were describing perestroika. What was the decision-making process? What were the ideas that were underlying the uh, the period of reforms um, in economic and political terms that Mikhail Gorbachev undertook? In the late 1980s, um, and I was expecting, hoping to find a means of comparing the Soviet experience with the Chinese experience during that same period, because just as Gorbachev was seeking to embrace, um, greater use of markets in, in the Soviet economy, embrace more foreign interconnections, so true in China, Deng Xiaoping, uh, was undertaking broadly similar reforms. Um, but one of the things that I was, I was struck when I, struck find when I reached the Soviet archives, and this kind of explains the second reason why I wrote the book was the extent to which not only were the Soviets doing roughly similar things as the Chinese, but they were reading Chinese newspapers, they were visiting China, they were studying for the Chinese model, so to speak, when they did them. And so this seemed to me something that was rather unexpected, because the usual story is that the Soviets failed to learn from the Chinese, and had they studied the Chinese model, their reforms during Perestroika would have turned out better. Uh, but what I was surprised to find was that um, nearly all of Gorbachev's top aides were, studying China, visiting China, trying to learn from what Deng Xiaoping was doing uh, in China. And that, to me, uh, seemed to be a pretty important um, data point for understanding what Perestroika was all about and, and why the Soviet uh, reform efforts diverged so sharply from what happened in China.
0: I think I've told that story myself. I admit it. <laughs> <laughs> Probably to hundreds of students. Sorry about that, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have Chris's book. <laughs> um, so uh, let, let's begin by talking just a little bit about what the Soviet economy was before Perestroika. What, what was uh, what, what was the challenge that Gorbachev, liberal or not, faced?
1: Well, the, the number one challenge was declining economic growth rates, and there are a number of different ways you can measure economic growth in the Soviet Union debates that go on to this day about what the right metric is, but I think no matter how you, you measure economic growth, uh, there was pretty rapid growth in the immediate post-war period, the 50s and the 60s, and by the 70s into the 1980s, growth had either slowed drastically or completely stalled. Um, there, was, there was basically no debate within the Soviet elite that something was not working in the economy. By the time Gorbachev came to power, it was it wasn't only Gorbachev who believed that things could not go on this way. That was kind of a universal belief uh, among the Soviet policy making class that something had to change to restart economic growth. And there were a number of different theories as to to why it was that growth had slowed. Um, and in, in Gorbachev's view, and not only his view, but again the view of many people in the um, in, in the kind of governing class, the, the argument was that the Soviet Union had long relied on extensive growth, that is. It, it had grown its economy by adding new resources, whether human resources in terms of bringing more people into the labor force or natural resources in terms of um, tapping into a uh, greater uh, supply of commodities and that it needed to turn towards intensive growth, which relied more on productivity gains, more on technology, more on making use of the resources that they had to drive growth into the future. And, and that was kind of broadly accepted. Um, by the Soviet elite in the 1980s, the shift from extensive to intensive. But there was a debate about what exactly that meant. How would you, how would you do that? And here, too, there were two schools of thought. Um, one school of thought was that if you had better institutions that um, provided clearer incentives to enterprises and individuals, that those enterprises and individuals would make more efficient use of the resources that they currently have. That because of that process, you could get more economic output given the same number of inputs. That was one school. And the second school of thought was that the real problem the Soviet Union faced was technological. And that if only it could catch up to Western levels of technology, to the technology that the United States used, that Germany used, that Japan used, then it could make more efficient use of resources. So it wasn't an institutional problem, it was a technological problem. And the second school of thought believed that the problem could be solved by investment. That the more you invest in new technology, the more productive your factories will become and the more likely you'll be able to restart economic growth from the levels that
0: you've seen in the 1950s and 1960s. Well, I mean, both of these are sensible theories. I mean, we should say that. I don't think either one could be dismissed immediately. We're having this debate right now in the United States about not declining uh, productivity, but about uh, why is it the case that uh, our recovery is relatively jobless? and We don't exactly know. <laughs> so we, we shouldn't call these people fools, I think. Um Now, uh, what did Gorbachev decide to do?
1: Well, in the end, he decided to do both, Um, (laughs) which I think is an easy choice for many politicians to make when you have differing groups advocating differing theories, um, and and they both are politically influential, try to give something to each group. So Gorbachev started his time in office with a program called Acceleration, um, which was basically a program of capital spending, so providing. More uh, investment to industries, more investment to factories, and this was designed to fit with the second theory that I outlined, the notion that if you had Mm -hmm. more technological progress, then you could have uh, more economic output with the same levels of inputs. Um, And this was tried from roughly 1985 to 1987 or 88. If you look at the statistics, you see increases in investment levels, and this was very popular um, with people who were managing factories who were benefiting. Um, from higher levels of investment factory um, workers factory managers believe that this was the way out of the soviet economic crisis um, and, and that was a program that was tried and, and it was the effects were not very visible by the 19 uh the, the late 1980s look at 1987 88, 89 what you see is that there's no great increase in production uh despite the big increase in investment and so what that told economists was that in fact this new investment was not being put to productive uses it was Uh, essentially being wasted Mm -hmm. Um, and and that led to kind of a a shift towards the the other school of thought which is to say that you need better institutions which could more effectively direct investment. The problem wasn't the aggregate amount of money being put into factories. The problem was that this money was being spent in um, ill-advised ways and there were a number of reasons for this because factory managers didn't have incentives to be efficient because Um, They were given resources every year based on the amount of resources they used the previous year. So if you cut last year's spending, you would get fewer resources the next year. And so there were a group of economists uh, close to Gorbachev who increasingly advised him to focus less on increasing investment levels, less on driving technological growth from the center, and more on providing the right institutional structure for individual enterprises and individual um, workers to, uh, to work most efficiently. And so that's why you see a shift Um, in the later period of perestroika, to changing the structure of the Soviet economy so that decision-making faces, in theory, better incentives. And that's where you get a greater reliance on market mechanisms, both at the individual level and at the firm level, um, in an attempt to make these investment decisions
0: more efficient. I'm wondering about uh, how they talked about this, because I can remember going to the Soviet Union and learning, this is in the 80s, and learning that, uh, apparently, as far as I could tell, the Word for a productive that is not zero sum trade, you know, where everybody gets what they want. This is like on the street was speculatia, <laughs> uh-huh. <right>. right. <laughs> which has a kind of negative connotation. We would call it a good deal and they called it speculatia. <laughs> so how did they talk about this? Uh, you know, in what it really is essentially is an introduction to of, 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 of uh, of market institutions and kind of, and, and maybe even reliance on the price mechanism for distribution of goods.
1: That's right, and it was a, a big issue in Soviet politics. And the way they talked about it depended on who you were looking at. So those advisors to Gorbachev, people around him who were more supportive of these changes, uh, tended to avoid words like speculatia um, because of the derogatory undertones of that, um, and, and tried to use more neutral language to describe what was going on. But opponents of these these changes. Um, regularly looked back to 1917 and said, this is what we defeated in 1917. Mm-hmm. The party cannot stand for this. I remember in particular one uh, debate, I think it was from 1987 in the Politburo, where Gromyko says to Gorbachev, look, the party decided in 1917, we're not for private property, we're for public property. Um, and, and that was a debate that was not only about interest groups, so you certainly had interest groups play a role, but it was also about the fundamental question of what does the Soviet Union stand for, what does socialism stand for, And one of the interesting changes that you you have in Soviet politics during this period, and this was driven by Gorbachev himself, was a belief that you could have socialism and market mechanisms coexisting. Mm -hmm. And this is where you see Gorbachev drawing on on some ideas from Eurocommunism and looking at Sweden and the Nordic countries, which had combined a large welfare state with market mechanisms. Um, And this is an intensely controversial notion um, for, for the very reasons we've discussed dating back to the revolution. Uh, it seemed to overturn some of the core tenets of, of the Bolshevik Party from the beginning.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And here we come to the contrast with China, which I know nothing about. Let me just admit that to begin with. Uh, but my impression is that when they started to talk about these things uh, under Deng Xiaoping, that they found a language that was acceptable for everyone, and they were uh, actually able to move away from the anti-private property stance that what was really kind of the bedrock of of, of Marxism in, in in both the Soviet Union and in China. How, how did they manage to do that, if you know?
1: Well, the first thing I would say, Marshall, is, is that it would be wrong to understate the extent to which there was ideological conflict in China, too. Uh, there certainly were people who believed that the changes that took place uh, in the 1980s under Deng Xiaoping were rolling back the, the gains of communism. That was true when they looked at agricultural reforms where they decollectivized the countryside. That was true when they looked at the uh, decision to welcome foreign investment, which seemed like it was a reversion to the days of foreign concession zones under the mm-hmm. European imperialists. So I think there there was the same type of debate that you saw in the Soviet Union also in China. Uh, the difference is that the two sides had very different amounts of power in the two countries' political systems. So in the Soviet Union, uh, this school of thought, which believed that the peristoric economic reforms were rolling back the gains in 1917 was much more influential than uh, the group in China which saw Deng's reforms as threatening socialism. Um, and in part, that, that's because there was a, a slightly different definition of socialism or communism between the two countries. And this is something that uh, my colleague Jeremy Friedman at Harvard Business School has written on a lot, which is that in the Soviet Union, the definition of communism or socialism was much more about anti-capitalism, whereas in China, words like communism and socialism were much more about anti-imperialism. And so in the Chinese context, you could fit more market mechanisms in a socialist framework So long as you were demonstrating that it was making China stronger, um, having China stand up on the world stage. Whereas in the Soviet Union, when socialism was all about anti-capitalism, that was a much
0: harder sell. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that rings true to me, actually. So uh, we get right to the thesis of your book, or one of the theses of your book. I think the main thesis, and that is that uh, in comparison to China, where Deng Xiaoping did face opposition, though it was not, I think, as strong as it was in the USSR. That is, in the USSR, Gorbachev faced a lot of interest groups, and this is something, it's kind of the holy grail of sociology, used to be able to to, be, to identify these things. I remember they were tried, <laughs> tried mildly to identify who all these interest groups were because, you know, we understood... Uh, to the credit of all these people that said studied Soviet Union, that the Soviet Union was not monolithic, that people like Gorbachev were not autocrats, that they had to deal with lots of different interests. The, the, the difficulty that I remember in reading this literature was trying to find out who the heck they were and then trying to find examples of how they stood in the way of various things or promoted policies and were able to push through initiatives, that kind of thing. So could you talk a little bit about these interest groups that were both on Gorbachev's side and were against him and made the path to market mechanisms that much more difficult in the Soviet Union?
1: Sure. So, so one of the the sources that I, I looked at when I was trying to understand the debate this period were the notes that were taken from Politburo meetings by uh, several of Gorbachev's top aides. And one of the things that these notes give us, they, they run from 1985 to 1991, and they give us a pretty unique uh, lens into the into Soviet political debate. I
0: thought, Wait a minute. The how, the he- of how the policy. heck did you get those? <laughs>
1: those are. It's an interesting story, actually, um, for, for much of
0: the post War period. That's the Holy Grail uh, of historians, right, right there, there, man.
1: Well, <laughs> well, three, three of Gorbachev's aides took detailed notes at all of your meetings from the entire six years that he was uh, in office, and those notes are, are preserved at the Gorbachev Foundation, wow. so they're outside of the, the state archive system and So. We actually have a greater window into Soviet politics during the Gorbachev period than during earlier periods. Good for you. Uh, And and what was interesting is that these notes are actually, they're not new. Um, They've been used pretty extensively by historians of Soviet foreign policy in the Cold War. Um, They're a great source if you're looking to understand, for example, the uh, decision to withdraw from Eastern Europe or the nuclear summits with Reagan, but they hadn't really been applied at all um, to understanding Soviet domestic politics. And this struck me as a pretty uh, significant oversight, particularly because they give you this incredible lens on the debate between Gorbachev and his rivals in the Trump sure. Bureau. Sure.
0: Um,
1: and so one of the things that you you immediately notice when you read through these is that in addition to these ideological debates about the meaning of socialism, uh, the debates about the meaning of, of the revolution in 1917, and debates between the, the Leninist path and, and more Stalinist-style industrialization, you also have interest groups which are mentioned by name, so for example, the agro-industrial complex or the military-industrial complex, which regularly appear uh, in these polypier notes. Uh, and that struck me as something that had not really made it into our existing stories of Paris but was profoundly important for how the reforms shaped out, because one of the things that you see very clearly in the polypure papers is Gorbachev is regularly pushing ideas which are either not implemented at all or implemented only after a several year delay. And the, the way that this is explained, in my view, is, is not because Gorbachev was an incompetent politician per se, uh, but because he was far less powerful than I think we realized at the time or, or often realized when looking back. And that the reason is because these interest groups were arrayed against him. And when he wanted to uh, make a move that threatened their interests or threatened their well-being, they had the capacity to mobilize their supporters, mobilize their patronage networks uh, within the party and within the state apparatus to obstruct change. Mm-hmm. Um, so and, this and is, so it seems like understanding that that facet is crucial to understanding the
0: entire perestroika or politics. Sure, and this is a little bit to put you on the spot and if you can't answer I'm I'm I'm, I'm sorry for that. Can you give an example of an initiative that Gorbachev had? He said, "Okay, so we want to move to something that's a little bit more liberal, maybe market-based, we want to use the price mechanism." And somebody standing up and saying, "No, no, we're not going to do that," or somebody simply uh, dragging their feet in such a way that it dies. Are there specific examples of this?
1: Sure, there are dozens of examples of this. Um, if you look through the, the Council of Ministers' papers in, in the State Archives in Moscow, um, it's littered with, uh, with letters from um, either the ministries or letters from um, provincial officials saying we need investment for issue X or Y, and those, those issues are often discussed at the popular level, um, where one of the more pro-investment um, leaders will say, you know, I got this letter from this minister or from this official. He says he needs investment for Issue Act. Surely it's very important that we invest in this. We've committed to having um, we've committed to having more technological growth. This can only happen with investment. And so you can see throughout the, the bureaucracy, these demands for um, for more capital spending in their own branches or these demands for slower change um, percolating up on uh, a kind of constant basis. Um, so whether it's uh, investment in military industrial complex, whether it's investment in irrigation um, there, there are dozens of examples of this that, that and I saw both in the mm-hmm. papers and papers and in, and in papers of like GARF. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I guess I'm not even really clear on how one would take an institution, say for instance the manufacturer of airplane parts or something, in a command economy where they're a line item in a government budget and there's simply an allocation made and saying to that firm, well, now you're going to have to go source your own material. We're not going to give you. Uh, we're going to give you a certain amount of money, and then you're going to be required to go find that in the "quote unquote" market. We're not going to do mm-hmm. everything for you. How did that happen?
1: Well, the, the first thing is that it happened very slowly. Um, like in China, the Soviet Union didn't immediately jump from a planned system to a completely market-based system. Um, it started first with uh, efforts to legalize individual work efforts. So. For example, the law on individual labor activity made it legal to work outside of the state sector, which for a long time it was only legal in very specific uh, circumstances. So that was an attempt to create more of a labor market Mm -hmm. where none had previously legally existed. Um, Then there were efforts to apply clearer incentives to enterprises. So not to say that they uh, no longer were planned at all, but to say that the, the, the means by which they were rewarded were more clearly tied to efficient use of the resources that they were given and efficient production what was demanded of them. So there was kind of a step-by-step process that was laid out um, and, and the steps that were taken actually when you kind of zoom out at the macro level look roughly similar to what was done in China. Um, and that was another interesting, I think, point uh, that I took away was that if you look at what Gorbachev tried to implement in terms of the structural reforms to industries, the reforms to labor markets, that doesn't look all that different than what the Chinese did. Uh, the, the differences in the political backlash rather than the design
0: of the reforms. I, I get, yeah, I, I guess I'm still, I, I just am amazed that they could, I don't know where you would start because the, the system, as I understood it, it had a large black element. That is to say, I had lots of Soviet friends who essentially had pseudo jobs. I guess I put it that way. And these pseudo jobs were almost traded. That is mm-hmm. to say they would, <laughs> they would, they would have some job at a hospital and they would give half of their salary to somebody at the hospital so they wouldn't have to show up unless somebody would give them more money for it and it wouldn't make them pay as much, and then they would trade it to somebody else. And then they would go to whatever job they actually had. So I understood all that, um, but but I guess I just don't, I can't quite wrap my mind around where where's the entry point for saying, okay, you're on your own. You're going to have to, um, you're really going to have to rely on market mechanisms to do what we want you to do.
1: Well, I would say two things to that, Marshall. The first is that you know the the divide between planning and market is not kind of a either-or. It's always a spectrum. Uh-huh. It was a spectrum in the Soviet Union. It's a spectrum uh, in, in, quote-unquote, capitalist countries like the United States today. There are many things that we plan, from interest rates to, sure. to health care payments, things like that. So it wasn't just kind of jumping off a cliff. It was it was a shift along a spectrum. Um, and the existence of market mechanisms before Perestroika both um, through legal mechanisms like co-host markets and through illegal mechanisms like the black markets which you discussed, which had increased probably in in their relevance throughout the nineteen seventies and early nineteen eighties, uh, showed that there was plenty of capacity for for using market relations. Um, and part of the efforts of the early peristoric years, nineteen eighty five, eighty six, eighty seven, was actually more about legalizing black markets than it was about creating new yeah, markets.
0: Yeah, that was my impression. Because too. one of the
1: problems was that if you worked in a black market, what you were doing was illegal, you were Using supplies that were considered stolen, um, if that were just legalized, Gorbachev believed you would have a pretty significant market sector um, that would would grow quite rapidly as soon
0: as it was uh, not punishable by prison. Hmm. Yeah, I I, I I do remember that initiative actually. Um, the the and, and here's the here's the what they say the kids I don't know if the kids say this anymore the money question well uh, why was it the case that uh, Gorbachev couldn't defeat these interest groups that stood in the way of his reforms. Is there, is there an answer to that question? Is there something we can say?
1: Well, if you kind of zoom out of the Gorbachev period into kind of the entire course of Russian politics since that period, I I think it's clear that some of the interest groups were defeated. Um, So for example, if you look at the agricultural sector, the amount of subsidies given uh, from the central government to the agricultural sector is, vastly less today than it was in 1985. Um, same too with um, a number of heavy industries. Very few of them are uh, in existence today, and those that are um, are the relatively more efficient ones compared with 1985. Um, so I think over time, so several of them have been uh, defeated by political shifts. The, the problem that Gorbachev faced was that he couldn't defeat them in time, and he couldn't defeat them without the entire collapse of the political structure. Mm-hmm. And, and there were two reasons for that. Um, one was that the interest groups stuck together, so it was impossible to pick them off one by one. Uh, and the explanation for that, I think, is twofold. One is that they'd, uh, they they shared an ideology, which is that it wasn't only about self interest. It was also that these people believed um, in in a planned economy. They believed in uh, the socialist revolution, and that it was it was hard to pick them off one by one when they were knit together um, by this ideology. And the second was that they also shared policy goals. So higher investment levels in the center would benefit all of them. Not just specific groups. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so the combination of those two factors kept the interest groups together and made them a pretty potent force in standing up to Gorbachev. Mm -hmm. And I would say that the second factor that explains why Gorbachev couldn't defeat the interest groups um, was his own personal weakness. Um, So he, uh, if you compare, for example, to China, um, Deng Xiaoping was a a veteran of the Revolutionary War. He was a military hero, second only in comparison to Mao Zedong. Whereas Gorbachev was a, a bureaucrat, essentially, who had done a good job with the Soviet system, but uh, was not known for being particularly ruthless, was not known for being particularly valiant. He hadn't fought in World War II. Um, and all of these factors meant that you know, he was a reasonably well-respected politician, but nothing more than that. And if you're looking <laughs> to transform your country's political system, you know, that's not necessarily <laughs> the strongest place to start from.
0: Yeah, those are great attributes for a human being. <laughs> I don't know about the leader of a country. <laughs> so the uh, supporters of Donald Trump tell us. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the, um, you're fired. See, that's what you want. <laughs> um, now, you have some interesting things to say about the 1991 uh, coup, and your research obviously bears on what, what why it happened and, and, and who was involved in the oh, Gosh, I can't remember what they called themselves. What did they call themselves? Do you remember those guys? There's the state. Committee on, emer- on the emergency situation. Is that right? Yeah, I don't know. It was some Soviet, something like that. BS. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway, uh, could you talk a little bit about the genesis of that coup? The reasons for it?
1: Sure. So, in, in 1991, it was it was clear that the economic situation was spiraling out of control, just as the political situation was doing the same. So, you'd already had um, strong movements for independence in the Baltic states. You already had clashes um, brewing in the caucuses between different uh, ethnic groups. Um, and it was clear that, that the Soviet Union was headed for a pretty drastic change. I don't think many people even then expected a complete breakup, but clearly politics were, were moving rapidly. Um, but it was impossible to separate that from the economic story because they were interlinked. Um, the decline in Gorbachev's political authority um, reduced his ability to control the economy, and his reduced ability to control the economy further uh, deteriorated his political authority. So these were kind of similar processes running uh, parallel to each other. And one of the questions that Gorbachev faced in 1991, and it was a question that had persisted for the previous couple of years, was sharper than ever in 1991, was how do you stop um, the expansion of the money supply from growing inexorably? And this requires a bit of a dive into the Soviet budget process. But basically the story was that um, the budget deficit had expanded quite drastically during perestroika, in part because of these increased spending programs on uh, investment in industry that interest groups were demanding. And this deficit was funded by printing new rubles. And the effect of that was to throw a wrench into the planned economy because you had bottlenecks forming, uh, you had supply chains collapsing as the value of rubles uh, plummeted. And so the question on everyone's mind in the government was, how do you reduce this growth in the money supply? Um, and th- that question was essentially the same question as, how do you reduce the budget deficit? And there were a couple ways you could do that. One was by cutting spending. One was by increasing taxes. Um, But the problem that Gorbachev faced was that if he were to cut spending or raise taxes on the population, he would lose all of his political support from the population. He felt that was too dangerous to do. If he were to take that move, he would immediately lose power. But if he were to try to cut spending or raise taxes on the industrial groups, that too would represent a threat to his authority. And so he waffled between these two options, knowing that whichever path he took would likely have him cast from power. And by the time you get to the, the coup in um, August of 1991, uh, the industries are, are fearing that Gorbachev is going to take the second option. He's going to assemble a coalition that will drastically cut uh, subsidies on industry, will raise taxes on them, will reduce the amount of resources that are, that are given to them. And so the coup was not only an attempt by the, um, by the security services to reestablish a more centralized, more powerful political authority. It was closely linked with Um, attempts by the industries to safeguard their economic position. And actually, if you look at the committee that that directed the coup, uh, it wasn't only the chief of the KGB and the minister of defense, it was also um, heads of various industrial groupings that were participating. And they were designed to both show that the coup uh, was supported by economic elites, but also they were evidence that these economic groups felt like their interests were best defended by toppling Gorbachev, lest he take any steps that would reduce their authority.
0: Hmm. It's interesting what you have to say about the money supply, because, you know, in a socialist economy like that, that's the primary lever. And I remember one of the things our listeners might be interested to hear, and you you might remember this, I don't know, but this is true in the 80s, that the Soviets uh, prided themselves on printing the prices for everything on everything they sold. So you would buy a bottle and would have the price for it in the glass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or you'd buy, you know, it's a little bit like books today. We have this fiction that a book costs. Oh, it's twenty eight dollars. It says so right in the cover. <laughs> mm-hmm. Of course, it's whatever people will pay for it. But it says twenty eight dollars. But that was everything in the Soviet Union it had a price on it. It's because they didn't have inflation, you know. But when they didn't have inflation until perestroika, well, right. Well, they what had massive things, inflation. Things yeah, they had massive okay. inflation. And so you would look at these bottles, and it would say five kopecks or whatever. And you know, of course, it wasn't being sold for five kopecks. And, it was right, all kind of uh, right. the big lie. I think people call it. Yeah. So control the money supply. Yes. Very, very important. Um, so uh, could you talk to us a, a little bit about the way in which the Soviet economy came out of? Well, before you do that, I want, I want to tell an anecdote. Can I do that? For sure. Yeah. So anyway, I was uh, in the Soviet Union or like it was, it became the Soviet, it became Russia while I was there, but and I met this woman and she's very nice. She was a young woman and, uh, probably wasn't 30 years old and and she had uh, in in 1990 i think she had become a member of the communist party she had completed what is a the long and arduous journey of somebody to go from a, a, a kamsa mulca to uh, an actual full-fledged member of the communist party and i don't think people know that that was not an easy thing to do and uh, mm-hmm. so i talked to her about what, what was going on and you know she was really a true believer she uh did think that profit was speculatia and she uh she, yeah, she fits into that camp of people that, um, well, I'm just reminded that something that uh, Stephen Kotkin said once, and I didn't listen to it, and then I thought later about it, and I thought, yeah, you may be right about that. And uh, that is that the Soviet Union committed suicide by idealism. And I'm reminded of this <laughs> woman I met who, you know, it was clear that everything was over. It was done, right? It was, it was done. But she was still, you know, she was like, you remember when Gorbachev got down off the plane, when he came back from Crimea after the coup, and he starts talking about socialism, just like it was like nothing happened. I don't know. If mm-hmm. You remember this? this is a very famous. Story. I don't know if it's famous, but I remember it very well. So, could you could you talk a little bit about the the persistence very late of of these uh, ideals, really Marxist Leninist ideals about communism, v- very deep into the bureaucracy and certainly into the population. I think. Well, in
1: some ways, this gets back to the question of what was Gorbachev's. Set of political ideals to begin with, um, and if you ask him to this day, he will describe himself as a socialist. Yeah, um, and I, he firmly believes that what he was mm-hmm. trying to implement um, was not contradictory to socialism. And, and in some ways, I think if you if you look at the critiques that um, that kind of intelligent Soviet critics made of the Soviet system in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, you can very easily understand where they're coming from, um, which is to say that they looked at countries in. In Europe, they looked at countries like Sweden, that had very developed welfare states that provided far more welfare to their citizens than the Soviet Union provided to its citizens. Um, And they said, you know, this looks a lot to us like socialism reads in in the Marxist-Leninist classics. Hmm. Um, And in that context, if you kind of define socialism as making the average person better off in a very kind of uh, informal way, which is, I think, how a lot of people defined it in the Soviet Union, um, the the notion of introducing market mechanisms in sort of a a broad sense, which didn't threaten the the welfare provision um, seems to be pretty uh, consistent with, with people's beliefs. Um, And so I I think that that's kind of one framework by which a lot of people held on to the belief in socialism, even as they brought markets into the system. Hmm. Um, And I guess there's a second thing I would um, add to that, which is that there's there's a real extent to which the, the Marxist Leninist framework for intellectuals, or at least the Marxist framework for intellectuals, um, provided a mechanism for criticizing the Soviet state as much as defending it, um, which is that there were very many intelligent people, some of whom were closely um, linked to Gorbachev, advising Gorbachev, who used Marxist concepts to critique the Soviet state, mm-hmm. essentially saying that our great investment in the military, for example, was doing nothing for the working class, that we have these interest groups, which are far too influential. These are, you know, These are exploiting the average Soviet citizen in um, there, too, I think you can see attempts to make um, Marxism compatible with a, a sort of market-based uh, reformism, um, which actually, when you, when you step back, look more coherent than I think they often appear um, after the Soviet collapse. Hmm. Um, and it, it's always interesting, I think, talking to people who are now older, who were influential intellectuals at the time, many of whom still remain Marxists. If you ask them, mm-hmm. they say, well, yes, I'm still a Marxist. That still informs my worldview. Um, and I think that the Perestroika efforts were actually compatible with that had they worked out in the way that I expected
0: Hmm. Hmm. yeah I mean I find all this very interesting because I remember when I was uh, at a university you've heard of on the east coast and I was working (laughs) with a professor that you've heard of who taught at this university and uh, somebody I respected very much and he explained to me that the last socialist died in the Kremlin in about 1962 (laughs) And uh, I uh, looked at him and I said, um, You clearly lost your mind. <laughs> because he believed, and many people at this university that you know about also believed that there's something fundamental had changed and that the Soviets had adopted the Swedish model and they were well on their way. And I had been there and I was just flabbergasted by this opinion. Because that is not what I heard at all. Uh, what I heard was is that uh, Marx and Lenin said that the fundament of. Communism and socialism is no private property. They meant that part. And that was it. And that's what we're aiming at. You know, we're going to share things collectively and, and you know, we're going to do things for one another. And it's all going to be rainbows and unicorns, but there ain't going to be no private property. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah, I, I don't know. It's just I, I'm I, I look back on that time and I just am very confused by it because many Sovietologists in the United States were were actually they were saying, oh, look, the Soviet elite. says, oh yeah, the Swedish model, definitely. But that's not what I heard at all. Um, mm-hmm. I, maybe maybe my maybe I just had a weird group of friends and acquaintances. I don't know, but ideologues or something. But I don't see how you can get out of reading Marx and Lenin anything like the Swedish model, anything even close. <laughs> um, so I I, uh, I I I don't know. It, it remains kind of a mystery to me. But I, I do remember this woman, as I say, very well, and she was she had become a member of the party, and she was, you know, quoting Lenin to me. And I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and I think that speaks to kind of a, a, an interesting political debate within the Soviet Union. You know, we kind of, we often kind of push pushed the political debates under the cover, so to speak, but, it, you know, there was this big ideological debate as to what defined socialism, um, which was taking place throughout the period and intensified um, during the Perestroika era. Um, and certainly, you know, when you look back, there are certainly many people who are holding on to the definition of socialism as. Uh, no private property until the end, but there were also very interesting redefinitions of socialism that yeah. were kind of constantly taking place. Um, and I think first, in one reading of it was a, a victory of the attempt to redefine socialism into something else besides just to focus on private property. Um, you know, for example, I look back at there's there were a series of great critiques written by a number of uh, pretty interesting Soviet intellectuals in the 60s and 70s of the American military industrial complex as being fundamentally uh, an example of, you know, monopoly capitalism yeah. controlling a state. Um, and of course, those weren't primarily critiques of the U.S. military industrial complex. They were primarily critiques of the Soviet military industrial sure. complex, um, written in the guise of, of critiquing the U.S. And, and so you can easily kind of, you know, see Lenin very clearly through that monopoly capitalism, imperialism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. so I think that's kind of a, one of those attempts to redefine socialism, to focus not only on private property, but also on uh, other aspects of what what
0: Lenin and Marx were talking about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. I, I, I don't know the answer to these questions. I just remember these conversations I had with these people and they're puzzling to me at this time. So in any event, let me ask you this question. Uh, and again, it's, a, I think an important one. And so the, uh, Deng Xiaoping and his uh, friends, let's put successful in air quotes, but successfully introduced market mechanisms and a lot of international, uh, foreign trade and investment and the, uh, Chinese economy booms, uh, this does not happen in Russia. Um, why not? This is after Gorbachev. I'm talking about after Gorbachev. Yeah, because you would think. Again, I'm going to skip to the Putin era. He is kind mm-hmm. of an autocrat, isn't he? <laughs> Can't he get <laughs> <Indeed>. this done?
1: <laughs> well, you know, the first thing I would say, Marshall, is that I think in our in our history, 1991 is often a breaking point. There's a before and an after. But if you if you look in economic terms, 1991 was not nearly as revolutionary as as we often think. Um, so I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, first off, the industrial base persisted across 1991. So where there were factories in 1989, those factories almost all existed in 1992. Now they were often unprofitable in 1992, but they were still there, mm-hmm. still employing people. and They still had to be dealt with in politics. Um, another example: the the budget. Um, there was a massive budget deficit that the Soviet Union faced in 1991. Independent Russia inherited a massive budget deficit in 1992. Um, and, and so there were, across the economy, there were all these legacies, which, you know, obviously when you think about, uh, their, you know, how economies function, they they, they weren't changed nearly as, as rapidly as the political system changed. Um, and they all had to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. Uh, they all had to be managed. They all had to be funded. And, and the result was that, this, the Soviet Union ended in 1991, but the Soviet economy, uh, the Brezhnev era economy, uh, didn't end really until the end of the 1990s. Um, and so I think it's wrong in economic terms to, to treat 1991 as a breaking point. It was maybe the beginning of a, a decade-long transition from one economy to another economy. Mm-hmm. It was certainly the beginning of a transition from one political economy to another political economy. You certainly have vast changes in the distribution of wealth and the taxation system, the system of social provision, but it didn't happen overnight. Um, In some ways, I think the 1998 financial crisis was actually the true end of the Soviet economy. Um, It it was the true end, for example, of the system of uh, social provision. It it destroyed pensions uh, by introducing very rapid inflation. Um, It allowed the the government to slash subsidies for industries in a a way that really put a lot of industries out of business. Um, And so in some ways, I think 1998 is actually as significant of an endpoint for the Soviet economy as is 1991, mm-hmm. and so all that is to say that I think when you look at the, the 1990s and even into the early 2000s, you know the Soviet, the R- Russia is still dealing with the legacy of the Soviet economy um, in, in, in negative ways and in positive ways. It didn't disappear overnight, and, and so the legacy of all that is shaping um, what you have to deal with today. So, for example, when you look at Monogor, these uh, big industries in Siberia that only have these big cities in Siberia, only one industry, and that too is legacy of the Soviet economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have to you know, factor all that in when you're trying to understand uh, Russia's economic results in the 1990s and into the 2000s as well.
0: Mm-hmm. But presumably, Deng Xiaoping and he—you he, know—he he had the legacy of the Maoist economy to deal with, and they somehow overcame that. Well, the, the interesting thing with
1: with the Chinese example is that. Uh, you know, Mao didn't leave a very positive economic legacy. He also didn't leave <laughs> much of a negative one. Okay. <laughs> I will like, explain okay. you know what I mean. Right. Um, in, in, in the Soviet Union, there were, if you wanted to change things, there were a lot of pretty powerful institutions and groups that were um, set up against change. So, for uh-huh. example, if you look at agriculture, in the Soviet Union, there was a, a massive system of farm subsidies, which was crucial for raising farmers' wages. So, living standards in rural areas. Um, were far higher in the 1980s than they were in the 1950s, and what that meant is that you had literally millions of uh, farmers who were committed to keeping the existing system in place and so we sure. whereas Mao had managed the Chinese economy so badly that there was almost no one who believed that the existing system made them better off ah,
0: ah. And
1: so whereas Soviet peasants resisted change, Chinese peasants supported it because they knew they would be better off. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, And that same same mechanism was true throughout the Chinese economy, that things were going so badly at the time of Mao's death, that it was hard to envision changes making people worse off.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that does ring true with my experience in the Soviet Union because I also remember talking to lots of people, sort of everyday people, and being in their apartments, and they were like, well, say, look, socialism works. I got this nice apartment. I live in the, you know, exactly. I live, I live out on the moon basically outside Moscow, but my kids go to these great schools and, uh, I have this guaranteed income and, you know, we get to go on vacation once a year and, you know, we can go to the amusement park and look, I have the beer and vodka I want and, you know, I can buy jeans on the black market if I want to. And look, it's working. See? And I'm like, well, that's yeah, you're right. It, is. <laughs> yeah. it yeah. is. Yeah. It is. <laughs> you and know, and they were like, the yeah, the I don't have a washing machine. Thing. So what? So what? Right. Right. Yeah. Right. I don't. I don't care. I got a dotcha, you know. I don't. I don't care.
1: Uh-huh. And I'm like, you're right. right. You, I, you uh, zoom in on the the specific groups that that lost out uh, in perestroika and in the early Gaidar years. Um, that's even more true. So if you look at, for example, rural incomes, you know, the average rural income was far lower uh, right? in the early 1990s than yeah. it was.
0: In the, yeah, I didn't know any of those so people. That, that, no, I did not know those people. Yeah. no, I knew people that. You know, he had done really pretty well under, under the Soviet system. I mean, almost all of my friends were in Moscow or in the outskirts of Moscow. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, those people were an elite in and of themselves. But even the people I knew who mm-hmm. were, you know, it's sort of everyday working people, they, they were doing pretty well. Uh, I mean, not by American standards and they knew that, but they didn't seem to really care terribly much about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they were, you know, they were, yeah, it was working for them. I don't have any doubt about that. And the, and they desired to see that not go away. I mean, I think you saw that and they did all these opinion polls after 91 and, you know, people, you know, as their incomes declined, they were like, yeah, things were kind of better when we had, you know, the, the shops were full of sausage and now they're not, and, but they will be again. And they were, you know, it came back. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that is a very good point. I don't know anything about the Chinese case again. I mean, except to say that it, it seemed like one catastrophe after another that would, by any reasonable standard, discredit the idea that the state could run the economy. Whereas in the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. the state, you know, first they ran a pretty reasonably successful war that beat the Nazis. That was good, and mm-hmm. and, then, and then you know they they you know they they built something. They you know, incomes rose. They did. <laughs> they built apartments. People got cars. It worked. So I can see how they would be beholden to that, whereas in the Chinese case, they might not be.
1: The other factor that was very relevant in the Chinese case was the strength of the Communist Party. So in in the 1960s and 70s in the Soviet Union, uh, Brezhnev implemented policies like stability of the cadres, which solidified patronage networks, which made these interest groups even stronger mm-hmm. than they had previously been. Whereas in China, this is the period of the Cultural Revolution, right. which shook the party to its core, which yeah. uh, destroyed whatever interest groups had previously existed. And so what Deng Xiaoping inherited uh, in the late 1970s was a party that was far weaker than it had ever been and which was more shooken up than it had ever been. Mm-hmm. And that was, again, entirely different than what Gorbachev uh inherited in political terms.
0: Yeah, yeah, no. I, I remember, again, this is a more anecdotal business, but that's all I have, really. I can remember people who would, uh, in the party that I would talk to, who who were in these great patronage networks and did really well by them. And it didn't really seem to me mm-hmm. to be very, I'm trying to look for the right word. It just didn't seem to me terribly illegitimate way to go about making a good life for yourself. Is it everybody knew somebody at a pretty high place in the party? and And if you had any blot that way, then that was good for you. You know, nobody mm-hmm. said, that's evil, you shouldn't do that that was part of Soviet life. You had these people and they helped you and that's what they did. And that's not a bad thing, you know? So, and I think that's what this young woman, I was thinking she was trying to make a, make a, make a career that way, you know, as being one Mm -hmm. of these makers for people, you know, a marketer, you know, somebody who goes and does good things for people. Look, we're going to get eggs at your factory and that's going to be great. (laughs) You know? So I, I, yeah, there was a, there
1: was a great anecdote from a Soviet journalist. I think this was the late seventies. Um, who went to the cafeteria at Ghostplan. Um and I'm gonna get the numbers wrong, but she said there were twice as many seats in the cafeteria as there were employees in the building. Yeah. But every day all of the seats were full. Yeah. Uh, they were full because of right. people going and talking to their friend at Ghostplan asking for an additional right. uh, allotment of resources next year compared to this year.
0: Yeah, right, right. I mean and all this stuff worked. I mean they knew how it worked and it was regular and and uh you know, it just it's what they knew and I, I can easily see them becoming pretty beholden to it and resistant to the idea of speculatia. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay. Okay. laughs> we don't to really need that. We want, you know, we want, we want, uh, you know, everything to be, you know, we want everything to be orderly, right? That's, that's right. The, the word for it. So anyway, we've taken up a lot of your time, Chris. It's been a fascinating conversation. Um, maybe you could close the interview by telling us what you're working on now.
1: Sure. So I'm, I'm working on a new project. I think
0: it'll be a, a
1: book in a couple of years on uh, Soviet politics from the Thaw and up into Perestroika. So kind of digging deeper back into time, looking at the big debates in domestic politics. Um, so ideas about convergence with the West, ideas about the role of the state uh, in the political system, ideas about non-state actors in politics. Um, so trying to kind of dig into the ideas behind Soviet political debates uh, more than we've done before. And I'm going to do that by looking at a number of uh, key intellectuals who played a role in shaping these debates, both through their writings and also by advising uh, Soviet leaders from Khrushchev to Andropov all the way to Gorbachev. That's my
0: my current project. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds fascinating. And when it's done, we'll have to have you back on the – it's a good, good topic. When it's done, we'll have to have you back on the New Books Network to talk about it. Well, that'd be great. Okay, good enough. Let me tell everyone, first of all, well, first of all, let me say th- uh, thank you, Chris Miller, for being on the show. Thank you. Absolutely. And let me say we've been talking to Chris Miller about his terrific book, The Struggle to Save the Soviet Economy, Mikhail Gorbachev, and the Collapse of the USSR. It's available at bookstores and you know, wherever you can find, find books. And finally, let me thank everyone who listens to these podcasts from the entire staff, the New Books Network. Uh, we hope that you have a prosperous new year and we will uh, see you or hear from you soon. All right. Bye-bye.